Good morning, Solano. My name is Paul, and I have the privilege of reading today's scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 through 49. I invite you to open up your Bibles and read along with me. The resurrection body. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind of humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead, what is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory, it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. And was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. This is God's word. Thank you, Paul. My name is uh, Paul. I'm the associate pastor here. And if you're new here, you have to navigate several Pauls. There's, there's at least three of us plus the Apostle Paul. Um, and yeah, our, um, we are continuing in Corinthians this week and then next week, and then we will start our Advent series. Uh, and you could just be praying for, for me and Miguel, the elders. We're going to um, be preaching more with uh, our pastor, Pastor Andrew, our lead pastor on leave. Um, and so, uh, but yeah, we're going to be uh, taking a break from Corinthians to do our Advent series. But yeah, we're going to continue in this section in 1 Corinthians uh, also, it's good to see a lot of you here who are family, I believe, a lot of visitors uh, from Thanksgiving, and I kind of did the opposite. We went and visited family for Thanksgiving. Some of you are here for Thanksgiving. We went down for Thanksgiving, and uh, you know, so we, we were, I drove our kids down to um, like Pomona. It was like a six-hour drive. Not too bad. It was, it was a fun drive. Part of what makes a long drive good is a good playlist, Yeah. Um, maybe, maybe, you know, um, uh, uh, what do you call it? I'm blanking on the name, but, um, when you listen to different things on the radio, wh- whatever, uh, the point is, is you want a good playlist. So we listened to one of my playlists. I call it, uh, Paul's pump up playlist. I didn't mean to have an alliteration. It just popped out. Paul's pump up playlist. And these are songs that kind of inspire me. And I, um, I recently added a song by Kate Bush. Check this. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of her. Oh, Running Up That Hill. Now, this song came on the radio like a year ago, and it's like from the 80s. And all of a sudden, 
I started hearing Kate Bush running up the hill constantly. And I'm like, okay, this is kind of a weird 80s song. Like, what's this? It's okay. I would change the station like half the time. Um, and then I saw Stranger Things season four. Stranger Things season four. And uh, there is the protagonist, one of the protagonists, this song by Kate Bush running up that hill is played during a climactic scene where she confronts the main villain. And it's this really climactic, victorious scene where Kate Bush's song, Running Up the Hill, is being played. And after I saw that scene, it was such a great scene, and that music made the power of that scene really come to life and become more vivid, I wanted to recapture that feeling with the song. And so I put it on my playlist because even though I saw that scene only one time, when I would, you know, when I'm running and I need to be inspired because I'm suffering and I hate that I'm running, I, I, th- I want to think about that scene. I want to remember the power of that scene. And so I play Kate Bush's song, Running Up That Hill. And so I think that's what Paul is going to do for us in this section of 1 Corinthians because there is an amazing victory that God has won for us. If we are in Christ, he has given us a victory which is Christ's resurrection that brought us salvation. And the climax of the consummation of that victory is our resurrection. And so God wants that to be vivid in our minds. I want that scene when I'm running uh, 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 from, that, from Stranger Things to be vivid so I gain that power of inspiration. Well, God is saying, I want you to have at the center of your hope the power of Christ's victory on your behalf. I want resurrection to be vivid as you go through the trials of life the temptations of life, what's going to get you through that? The victory that is yours. But there's a problem with this victory. There's a psychological problem with it. The first is that it's in the future, right? And things are, that are far in the future are hard psychologically to keep in the front of our minds. Like if I told our kids, hey, we're going to Paris in five years, they'd be like, oh, okay, cool. All right, five years, they'd quickly forget about it. And so here we have resurrection way in the future. It's actually on the other side of death. And so that is, it's so far in the future, it's actually, there seems to be this barrier to even getting there. And so the other problem with resurrection is that we don't really have a category for it. Right? So we have a category, like, you know, my, my kids have a category for Paris. It's, it's, a, it's a place, there's pictures of it. Some of you have been there, you can talk about it. We have a category for travel, But how many of us have a category for being raised from the dead? How many of you talk to somebody who's been raised from the dead? We don't see it in nature. And so, and so, um, my, uh, my iPad keeps, uh, my iPad keeps, uh, can, uh, someone come in and turn off my, uh, Can you, can you make sure it doesn't turn off anymore? <laughs> Don't know what happened. Um, yeah. So, 
so what, what, was I, what was I saying there? What's that? Oh, we don't have a category for resurrection. Um, and so what Paul's going to have to do is he's going to help, he's going to have to point us to things that, that God has given us to make it vivid. It is difficult for us psychologically to keep resurrection in the front of our minds because it's in the future. We don't have a category for it. And so uh, Paul's going to say, I'm going to help you out. That's what this passage is. I'm going to help you make it vivid. Uh, and so why don't we jump in and see how Paul does that. And we're going to start off with there's this objection. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. Uh, I, I thought that was a legit question, but apparently Paul thought it was a dumb one. Um, and so he gets a little chippy here. Um, and so I had to think about it. And probably what's going on is there's a lot of resistance in the Corinthian church to the resurrection. And I, I have to imagine this is more of a cynical question. It's more of, okay, Paul, you want to talk about resurrection? Thank you. We got it? We good? <sighs> we want to talk about resurrection, but I don't, there are some people who didn't even believe it happened, but then if, 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 if all right, Paul, if you're going to say it's happened, but what does that even look like? I mean, how are these bodies even raised? And so the inability to imagine what it could look like was leading to this defeater question. So it's more of a cynical question. Well, what does that even look like for bodies to be raised? I can't really even believe in that. And so Paul says, that's foolish. It is foolish for us to let our practical questions of what it can look like limit what we believe God can do. And Paul says, that's foolish. And the other reason it's foolish, he's going to point out, is he's saying, okay, you can't picture it, but actually you believe in it all the time. It's in nature all the time. If you would only see and, and, and look at what God has put in creation, it's actually easy to imagine resurrection. Um, but I want to ask a deeper question. Why would there be so much resistance to the resurrection of the dead? Why all this uh, uh, objections to it? Why is it so contentious? And why is Paul getting chippy here? He's it hit a nerve with Paul, and he really, really doesn't want to let our doubts of resurrection be a wet blanket on our belief in it. And I think the answer of why the resurrection is so critical, why it's such a battleground doctrine, is because how we see our future greatly affects how we live now. They absolutely are related. And so if this life is all we have, if you functionally work and live that way, we're going to become hugely prejudiced and biased towards maximizing our bodily experience and pleasure now and minimizing pain. If you believe that this is all life is, Paul said it in the previous section, then you might as well uh, eat and drink for tomorrow we die. If your whole vision for your life is this life, you're going to be extremely prejudiced to maximizing pleasure. And so there's a motive then to deny resurrection 
and to live for the here and now and to live free from judgment. Because if it's just for the here and now, then our deeds have no real or ultimate moral weight. We could just get away with it. We might have social pressure to do what's right, but that's kind of easy to get around. That only, what, what if people don't know that we're doing certain things? We can get around social pressure. We can hide it. We can change even the way society views certain things. We can sneak. We can justify our behavior. But on the, uh, if there, but on the other hand, if there is resurrection, then that means this life, this form of existence is not the point. It's not the end. It's a prelude to something eternal. If there is resurrection, then we're actually living in this life for something in the next. And that means that our future resurrection absolutely dictates how we live in this life. No one wants to miss out on resurrection. But what Jesus' resurrection means is that God controls resurrection. Our bodies are under his judgment. Therefore, the future of resurrection absolutely puts a demand on us now to live in light of Christ's resurrection. If he was resurrected, we can be sure of our resurrection. But if we begin to doubt it, if we begin to neglect to think about resurrection, we will lose the force of our conviction to live in light of the gospel. In other words, what I'm saying is without a firm sense of the resurrection of your body, in the future, you will live with a shallow motive for holiness because you'll be too tempted for the pleasures of this world. You're going to want to soak in the pleasures of this world unless you are fixed on the pleasures of the next. The pleasures of this life will be so bright to you and the pain of this life, the pain of doing righteousness, you'll want to avoid it. But if your hope is in the next, you'll push into the pain of doing righteousness. You'll be able to avoid the temptations of the pleasures of this world. And so this is why it's so critical. This is what's at stake in our view of the resurrection. Is it's going to absolutely dictate how you live in this life. You're either going to live for the pleasures of this world and avoid pain. Or you're going to live for God's righteousness. All of that is going to depend on how strong of a view you have of your body being resurrected. And so Paul wants to make it vivid for us. And the first way he does that is he says, I want you to look at the creative power of nature. Here's what he says. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. And so Paul is saying, you believe in resurrection every time you plant a seed. Because a seed starts off in this one form and look what it becomes. And so like take the example of a mustard seed. Look at that little thing. Look at how like boring it is you don't even know what it is it's just this little ball but look what it becomes you couldn't imagine that seed could be transformed into that kind of splendor and he's saying that's a picture of resurrection that seed has to die 
for it to become something unimaginable. And if you can believe that, Paul is saying, that's a sign from God because you know what? It's not just a coincidence. It's not just a metaphor. God designed these seeds. He, in fact, not only designed seeds, but all of nature God designed in a certain way to communicate to you about your destiny. Look what he says. For not all the flesh is the same, but there is one kind of humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. He starts talking about these differences between animals and human beings and their bodies. But not just the earthly things, he goes on, verse 40. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. And so the seed analogy kind of makes sense. It dies and is transformed. We can understand that. But what, what's Paul doing here? He's saying that um, there's all these differences of glory in nature. And he basically covers all creation. Earth and heaven. There's these differing glories all around us. And we're supposed to understand what that means. And this is what he says. So it is the resurrection of the dead. I had to wrestle with this. What's, what's, what's his point? And I think his point is this. Written into the fabric of creation is the story of resurrection. Why are ants so vastly different from human beings? Why are our bodies so different from other animals and other animals from other animals because one day our bodies are going to be different in the resurrection. Why is the sun so much brighter than the moon? Because one day our bodies are going to be so dramatically different and changed. I want you to think of Yosemite for a second. How beautiful it is. Look at that. What a, what a wonderful picture of splendor and glory. Have you ever wondered why your backyard is not Yosemite? You're like, I've never wondered that, ever. Well, Paul's saying you're supposed to notice that. You're supposed to notice the difference in glory. There's a reason why God wants your breath taken away from you when you round that corner to go into Yosemite. I'm sorry if you've never been there. Um, you, you drive to Yosemite, you round the corner, you go through the tunnel, boom, it opens up to the valley and it just takes your breath away. There's a reason why that's a special glory compared to walking out in your backyard. Some of you have nice backyards, but it's not Yosemite. Because God is, he is, communicating to you about your destiny, you will be changed. Your glory will be changed. When you see a beautiful fall sunset, I love fall sunsets in the East Bay. It's such a unique time. When you see that and it's special, that's God whispering to you about your destiny. You know, when you go backpacking or off-roading in order to get a better view of nature, especially the stars, Right? You, can't, you can't see nothing when you're in the, in the city. 
You, you look up in heaven, you're like, oh, you don't see the glory of the stars. But when you go out and you take this off-road journey and you see the stars, that is God foreshadowing your future. That you are going to be changed. And so, this is what God is saying. This is what God is doing at nature. When you look at everything in nature, God wants you to be thinking about your destiny. He has put a song into creation to remind you of that powerful victory that is yours. That your glory is changing. All these differing glories are God's way of communicating to you what is going to happen. The perfect is coming. Jesus is the author and perfecter of your faith. Now, there's another way that Paul wants resurrection to be vivid. So nature helps us. We see that all the time. And I hope we feel that. I hope we look at nature and hear the song of our resurrection in nature. But there's another way, and it's actually our own weaknesses. Here's what Paul says in verse 42, talking about our bodies. What is sown is perishable. What is raised, imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. And so we can notice here, notice those descriptors of what this existence, this side of resurrection is like. Notice how negative it is. Perishable, weak, dishonor. Natural versus spiritual. So natural meaning not of the spirit, not connected to the spirit. Just, just natural, not heavenly. And so Paul is saying that he's not saying that the physical world, the world we live in is necessarily evil, but that it's corrupted. It's not what it's supposed to be. And we're supposed to feel that. We're supposed to actually feel that struggle of what this life is like. And, and if you really, you know, you really think about what Paul is saying, all of your life, at every point of your life, in every aspect of your life, you are perishing. We are sown perishable. We are degrading. The word there is like the picture of what happens to your banana if you let it sit. That's what's happening to your body. That is what is happening to us over time, degrading. We are weak and cannot do what we want. Our sin nature inhibits us and keeps us from doing what we want. Our body pulls us towards what is earthly and fleshly rather than what is spiritual. I mean, even this sermon. Right? I want my brain and my voice and my emotions and my insight and my empathy and love and prayer to come together in this perfect symphony of truth and grace. And yet, my weaknesses, my frailties, my limitations invade every word I utter. All of us are experiencing that every day of our lives. Now, I'm not trying to be negative. That sounds really negative, doesn't it? But I think what Paul's doing, I just, it's kind of like, a, you know, 
when someone is in a really dysfunctional relationship, maybe an abusive relationship, you know, what tends to happen to that person is, notice what they do, they tend to try to manage it. And they actually try to look at, well, there's some positive things about this, so it's not that bad. And usually what has to happen is someone has to come from the outside and say, this is not okay. This is not what you were meant to live for. And that's what Paul is doing. He's saying, these embodied experiences, this side of resurrection is messed up. Yeah, there are some good aspects to it, but it is messed up. It is abusive. It is dysfunctional. And the reason God wants us to know this is because he is working a good in us when we feel those weaknesses Because here's the deal. Remember the problem with picturing resurrection, with keeping resurrection vivid? Well, you know what is also, you know what is vivid? Our own struggles. Those are vivid. We feel those struggles. We feel our bodies deteriorating. We feel our weaknesses, our limitations. We struggle with our sin nature very vividly. But you know what that does? It makes you long for the vivid reversal of it. It makes you long for God to take all that and reverse it completely. My decaying body will put on the perfection of immortality. My sin nature that keeps me from loving God and loving others will be removed. And the floodgates of love for God will be opened in the perfection of righteousness. My limitations and my weaknesses and my fears that prevent me from living out the full potential of human glory, that will be gone. And so God wants you, when you feel those weaknesses and the perishability and the dishonor of life, it makes it more vivid to to think about the reversal of those. That's a good work of the Holy Spirit to remind us that this life is not what we were meant for. It's not how it's supposed to be. It's going to be changed. Hope in that. You know, you think about the story of Cinderella. You know, she's in rags, and she's in this oppressive relationship with her stepmother and her stepsisters. And you know what that story's not about? Is telling Cinderella, hey, you know what, Cinderella? You can't control your mother's actions, but you can control your own actions. And so you need to make the most of this situation and and you can't let her affect your own happiness. Now, to a degree, Cinderella does a good job, doesn't she? She she has friends, she's friends with the mice, you know? And she she sings and she makes that dress, and that doesn't go well for her, but she tries to make the most of it, but we all know that cannot rescue her. She is still stuck in the rags and in that oppressive house. There's only one thing that's going to rescue her. Her prince charming is going to come and take her to happily ever after. That's what Paul is saying this life is. Yes, we need to manage the pain. There's joys in it. But our hope is in we being the bride of Christ. And he will take us to our happily ever after. And so we let our weaknesses, we let that struggle make us long for that moment. 
And you can even imagine Cinderella, if she knew her Prince Charming was coming, how that would help her endure her suffering with patience and love her enemies, knowing her, her, her Prince Charming is coming. And so that's how God wants us to live with resurrection vivid. Happily ever after is coming. Jesus is coming. The perfect is coming. And so to help us have a vivid sense of resurrection, Paul says you can see it in nature. You can see it in all the differing glories that God has put all around us. You can feel it in the experience of our own brokenness as we long for its reversal. And he gives one final category to help us with the resurrection, and that's Christ's own resurrection. And verse 45, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The best is yet to come. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as, the, as, as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. And so what Paul does is he wants to, in this last part, wants to tie our vision of resurrection to Christ's own resurrection. And what he does is he uses our unity with Adam as a paradigm to think about our unity with Christ. And so he wants us to have this, he said, you know, you are born from a human being who was descended from Adam. Human beings give birth to human beings, right? It's, it's, it's one of the most um, uh, things that we can be most confident about in life. If, I, if, someone, if, if a woman is pregnant, you know that what is going to come out is a human being. We've had several thousand millennia of people being born to prove that rule. And as certain and as confident as you are in that happening, I want you to be as certain and confident that you will be born of Jesus Christ. You will inherit his glory, his image. As predictable as that is, as sure as you are of that, I want you to be as sure of what your future is to inherit Christ's body to inherit his glory and his future. You will bear the image of the man of heaven. And notice what Paul emphasizes here. Adam's nature, he keeps referring to it as dust. Dust. Four times, dust, 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 compared to heaven, heaven, heaven. And I think what Paul's doing is he's saying, you have a choice before you. The choice is you can chase after dust in this life, or you can cherish your destiny in the next. You can chase, this life is dust. This body, he's Paul saying, don't be seduced by this bodily experience. This is flesh and blood, and it, will, it is nothing more than dust, right? This is dust, dust, dust. Like I was even waking up this morning thinking about what I'm going to wear, and should I put product in my hair or not? And this is just dust. It's stupid to worry about this stuff. It's dishonorable to our dignity to worry about these earthly things that are dust when we are going to be clothed in glory. Now we worry about these. I'm going to worry about what I wear. Don't freak out. 
But Paul's saying that's a dishonorable, that's dishonorable for human dignity. Because one day you won't have to worry about any of that. You will be with, you will have heaven, you will be with Christ. Don't chase the dust. Don't chase the things of this world. And so Jesus, you know, nature is a sign of our transformation, but Jesus is the source of it. He is a life-giving spirit. What a beautiful picture of the gospel. That the man from heaven, the man who was perfect and had immortality, took on a perishable body. He came and was Uh, It says that he took on um, the likeness of sinful nature. He took on our weaknesses. He actually experienced our temptations, but without sin. And he could sympathize with our weaknesses. He experienced the dishonor of our sin when he was put up on the cross. He experienced the shame of it, but then was resurrected to glory. And the good news of the gospel is that we can have all of that by faith alone. All of that is ours if we turn from this life and from sin and believe in Jesus, we have all of that by faith alone. And so the good news of believing in Christ is that we could be freed from the pain of this world. That doesn't mean we don't experience pain, but we are freed from the pain of this world getting the victory. Because death is what makes our pain get the vic- makes pain get the victory. Because if this world, if death was the end, then pain wins. But in resurrection, when resurrection gets the victory, death has lost its sting. And we now can endure pain as almost like it's nothing, Paul says. In fact, it's incomparable next to the glory that awaits us. And so we are freed from the pain because we have resurrection glory as our destiny. So if you come here weary from the pain and brokenness of this world, tired of facing disappointment and longing for more but not knowing where to find it, The gospel is the good news that eternal life is promised to you in Jesus Christ. He was crucified and was risen again. That's a fact. You can trust that and know that eternal life and the hope of it and that your destiny is with him. And so the gospel calls you to believe. Believe in that. Don't doubt. Don't deny. Believe and be saved. And have that hope. Just want to make um, a couple points of, of application about the resurrection. One way to think about this is that a vague sense of resurrection leads to vivid temptation. And so what we want to be afraid of in a healthy way as Christians is that, and the Bible talks about this a lot, is that we would begin to run after the world that we would chase after the pleasures of this life and neglect and fall away from our faith in Jesus Christ. These bodies are weak and the pleasures of this world are strong temptations 
And so those are going to be more vivid unless you keep clear in the front of your mind, resurrection, that's what I'm holding out for. That has to be strong in our minds. That is what's going to be a shield of faith for us, is to think about where we're headed. And so where do you face the greatest temptations to sin? Is it greed? Is it sexual impurity? Is it apathy? Is it, is it jealousy? Where is it? Is it envy? Is it materialism? Where is your greatest temptations? I believe that if you can cultivate your hope in resurrection, it will soothe the flames of temptation. And lastly here, a vivid sense of resurrection, I think, can strengthen us during crushing disappointment. If we have a vivid sense of resurrection, it can give us a joyful determination to gain eternal life when we face the loss in this world. Because these bodies, the way we experience life, we want certain things in this life. We want to experience love. We want to experience joy. We want to experience security and pleasure in this life. Our bodies long for that. And so it hurts when that's denied. It hurts, it could be crushing. And, and so really in some ways, the only way to really be strengthened during that, because God is not gonna promise you you're gonna have all those things in this life. But he does in the next, beyond your wildest imagination. And so, you know, as I have, I've walked with Christ now for 25 years And as I've gotten older and I've experienced more disappointment, I've realized my own frailty more and more, my own weaknesses, I think of resurrection more and more. I think of Jesus, take me home. I long to be with you, to be freed from this world and the envies and the jealousies and the disappointments and the sin and the evil that befalls us and befalls those I love and and all of, all of that, I long for Jesus to come. And at my best, I can actually be thankful for those trials because they produce in me a character of perseverance and hope. That's what those trials are meant to do. Come, Lord Jesus. That's a holy work. And so let resurrection strengthen you in the face of crushing disappointment. So, In the midst of temptation, disappointment, and trials, God wants you to hear the music of resurrection that he's crafted into every nook and cranny of creation for you. That's your destiny he's speaking about. So you would see that song and think of that moment of your victory in Christ that is coming. That that would be that powerful moment that inspires you through, through all adversity. And seeing that, your heart and mind would swell with faith and worship until he comes or he calls you home. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for this word that we can dwell and meditate on. Uh, Lord, so that we can think about our future destiny with you. 
Lord, you have purchased us. You have given us the down payment of your Holy Spirit. And you have written it into the stars that our future destiny is with you, with the glory of the resurrection. Life, this life is a prelude to it. And so, Lord, let us live for that moment. Let us live for your glory and not the glory of this world. Lord, let us not chase the dust. Lord, let us cherish our destiny with you. Lord, so that we can endure pain and trials, Lord. We can have joy in the midst of suffering. We could love our enemy because we can love our enemies because we know you are coming to redeem and rescue your bride. Lord, let us live in light of resurrection. Let it be vivid and in our minds powerful and a source of joy and hope. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.